morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. My name's Ted, if I don't know you, one of the pastors here at the Church of Blue Ridge. If you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. We had a plan to go through the prologue of John's gospel uh, during Advent. Of course, we missed last week. So uh, today we're, we're catching up, but continuing in this passage, we'll be looking at verses 4 through verse 13. And you'll see the title slide up on the screens behind me, uh, simply, Let There Be Light. Let there be light. And of course, the light of salvation in Jesus Christ. But I have a question for everyone. Think of, especially when you were children, and of course the children who are in here today, but what was or maybe still is one of your greatest fears? One of your greatest fears. I think a common one for many of us, especially when we're children, I know it was mine, was the fear of darkness, the fear of darkness. In fact, do me a favor, close your eyes and just think about some event in your life where you had a negative encounter with darkness, whether a child or adult. Try to remember that time, that crippling fear of darkness. Now, you can open your eyes. For, for me, it was sleeping just about every night. I moved in with my dad and stepmom when I was seven, which was a really good thing, but they had a, a philosophy in parenting of tough love. So like they took my blanket from me right when I moved in with them, and probably a good idea at seven years old, right? But also, they wouldn't let me sleep with the light on. Not the hallway light, not a light in my bedroom. It was just tough love. So from the age of about 7 to 11, 11 I got over it. It's when I joined the Boy Scouts, and that seemed to help. But from 7 to 11, I, I sat there and tried to go to bed every night afraid of the dark, seeing things, hearing things, all the stereotypical uh, events. But there were three weeks of the year where I didn't have to sleep in the dark. And that's because my bed was right next to the window, and right outside that window was a hedge that my dad put those big, fat Christmas lights in. And for those three weeks, I can even close my eyes now and, and just see the glow of orange and red and blue light illuminating my entire bedroom. And I, and I remember going to bed those three weeks with peace, just that warm peace. Uh, and it's amazing how that happens. And and if you, if you remembered, like me, a time of, of crippling fear in regards to darkness, was there peace in those moments? Was there joy? And the same is true when it comes to spiritual darkness. The same is true when it comes to the spiritual light that Jesus Christ brings in the gospel. Look at this passage from Psalms in terms of God's relationship with the darkness. The psalmist writes there, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Let there be light. Let there be light. Now, before we jump into today's passage, I have a question, a biblical theology question. And you may have heard this taught either in a Bible college or a Sunday school class or a previous certain sermon. But if we boil down God's roles in history down to two, that the entire Bible summarizes those two primary roles of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, does anyone know what they are? I'll give you a hint. We saw one two weeks ago uh, in the beginning, and we're going to see one today, really what the gospel is about. God the creator, God the savior. The two primary roles of God in history. And, all, and both of those are encapsulated in this beautiful introduction to the gospel account of John. 
And here is the big idea, the, the sermon in a sentence for today's passage. In the creation, as well as in the new creation, the pre-existent word of God is the only true source of both light and life. Of course, creation, we know that. New creation is, of course, salvation, redemption, God's mission to save men, women, and children through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is the only, the only true source of both light and life. Let there be light. And today, the sermon is divided into three parts. First, we're going to see how Jesus is the, the source, the light source. Second, we're going to meet the light's witness, the light's initial witness in John the Baptist. And finally, we're going to see the light's mission, the gospel mission brought to life in this great introduction. So again, look at your Bibles. We're going to pick up actually in verse 1. Two weeks ago, Robert did a great job preaching the first three verses of the prologue. If you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to go to our website, go to our iTunes podcast, and listen to the sermon from December 2nd, I think. First, second, yeah, somewhere around there. Two weeks ago. Not good with math. Yeah, second. Okay, so we're going to pick up and read his three verses that he started out with and then go into the, these fir- this first passage for today, verses 4 and 5, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So again, two weeks ago, those first three verses teach us some very important things about the Word of God. Again, think of the entire gospel series of John that we're going to jump into next year, where John is answering for us who the historical Jesus is, his identity. We learn that the Word is eternal, preexistent. He was, uh, before creation began, he was always We also learn that this word was a person, or he is a person, distinct from God the Father. Uh, We learn, too, that the word was God himself. And also, in verse 3, the word made everything that we see around us in creation. In fact, there's nothing that was made that was not made by the word of God. Of course, we know who he is, Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Interestingly enough, John doesn't tell us that this one he's talking about is Jesus Christ until verse 17. We'll see that next week. But we know the answer of who this one is. And so as we get to verse 4, where we pick up today, we see that in him, in the word, was life. And this life was the light of men. So what is John saying there? In fact, what's John doing with verses 4 and 5? I can tell you very simply, he's bridging from God the creator, that the word is, was God the creator to God the Savior. He's going from creation, now bridging to the new creation. Again, that's what the Gospel of John's about, right? It's not a study in, in Genesis. That's, a, that's the part he had to start with. Uh, the, again, the true origin story of this one. But now he's bridging into the new creation, getting to the Gospel. And if you look at your passage, he's still using the, the past tense verb, was, uh, you saw that la- uh, two weeks ago. We learned that was was the verb that, that John chose to describe him, to separate the word from creation, to make it very clear that he is not nor ever has been part of creation because he's God. He's God. And in him is this life, the only source of life. 
Think about the opposites for a moment of light and life. Darkness and death. We've talked about darkness already, but think about death. How many of you have been touched at some point in your life by the death of a loved one or a friend? And in those initial moments, were there peace? Was there joy? No. In fact, uh, the week before Thanksgiving, the week of Thanksgiving, I was leaving Blue Ridge High School. I just actually met with my friend Matthew, and I was coming out, and you may remember that that week, those of you who live here, there was a tragic accident involving a mom and a North Greenville student, and both of them were killed in that accident. And I happened to walk out of the high school at the exact moment, about 10 feet away, where a family member was telling the daughter of that mom that her, her mom had been killed that day. And it was the most heartbreaking thing. I had to sit down because of the emotion at that moment. She could, the young lady couldn't even stand. Her knees buckled. She was wailing. There was no peace. There was no joy. And as we think of the negative, it, it helps us to understand how amazing is it that God would enter into creation. He would become one of us to bring light in life where there is none because we are born in utter darkness. We were born essentially dying. We're like zombies until Christ saves us, until he brings that light in life. What an amazing savior we have. Now look at verse five. Now we'll, we'll talk more about what it means that Jesus is the light of men when we get to verse nine. But, but verse five, what's really interesting here, you may not notice it, John does something very unexpected. He switches from the past tense where he's been so far, the, really the, the uh, uh, pre-existent past tense, talking about the word, to the present tense. He brings us into his, his day, nine, or 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some scholars say that John just couldn't wait to get to the good news because he's thinking now about what it means that Jesus Christ has come and, and done what he did in his life and in his ministry, in his death and resurrection. Look what he says. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And, and that, of course, is true back in Genesis 1. That is true that when God said, let there be light, when the, when the word said, let there be light, that light overcame the darkness. The void was, was lit up. And, and darkness cannot resist light, as we'll talk about here in a moment. In fact, we could sum up everything in the six days of creation in either light being created or life. Light in life. And, and you see here that uh, he's proclaiming more than just simply Genesis. In fact, all the scholars I studied said that verse 5 is referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the light came and destroyed the darkness. It's like Jesus kicked the door in on the darkness and the darkness couldn't stop it. The word overcome there is a very difficult word. It doesn't really translate well into English. But essentially, it carries with it the idea of mastery, right? The darkness is used to getting its way and mastering whatever it touches or, or tries to, but not with this light, not with the light of Jesus Christ. The darkness could not master the light. It had, really, it was no match. And isn't the same true in creation? I mean, do this when you get home. Go find the, the room in your house that maybe has no windows. Sit inside of it and turn the lights off. And then do this for about five times. Turn the light on and see if there's ever an a time when the darkness doesn't flee. Doesn't the darkness always flee when we turn the lights on? It can't resist it. 
And what we see in creation is true, of course, with Jesus Christ, with his resurrection power, the darkness cannot overcome the light. And John, with John, there's no what we call dualism. That was big in Greek philosophy, the idea that evil and good were equal and then this endless struggle and battle. That's not true when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the New Testament. When it comes to the gospel, there is no dualism. I don't know if any of you grew up watching Tom and Jerry. I did. And often when Tom the cat would get this, this idea about doing something bad to Jerry, you'd see a little uh, Tom angel and a little Tom devil appear on his shoulder Almost like it was 50-50, it could go either way. Not true when it comes to the power of Jesus Christ. The darkness is no match. It has to flee. And if we didn't have so many windows in here, I would try it now. And you could see, it always flees. It always flees. How great a God we have, indeed. A couple application points here. First and foremost, again, we're talking about physics. We're talking about physics, right? With light and darkness. But think about this. All of us receive light, and when we receive light, what do we cast behind us? We cast a shadow. Jesus is the source of light. How does that make him unique? He casts no shadow. He is the source. And I mention that because I, wanna, I like to share practical opportunities that you guys can, can bless your children, especially, or your grandchildren. But, you know, we get to the end of the year, we talk about who we lost this past year. We lost one of my favorite theologian and pastors, who's had probably the most profound effect upon me um, in, in my journey with Christ. That's R.C. Sproul. And what I loved about R.C. Sproul is he's like the smartest theologian ever, and yet he could write children's books as well. And these are two of my favorite that really connect into today's passages. So I'm just going to pass them around the room, let you look at them. One is called The King with No Shadow. And of course, that's our King Jesus Christ. He has no shadow. And then the other one is called the lightlings. It also goes very well with Jesus being the light of the world. So uh, you guys can look at those while I'm preaching. And then just, yeah, you guys have seen them many times. Just make sure we get those back at the end. That would be great. But look at this passage from, from, oh, let me, before you show the passage. As we continue through John, and you may already know this, but there's seven great I am statements where Jesus says, I am Blank, having to do with who he is. And one of my favorites and one of the most amazing ones, and we'll get to this eventually, is from John 8, John 8, 12. And of course, he anticipates here what he's going to say in John 8, 12. So let's read that. Again, Jesus spoke to them, talking to the Jews, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Will have the light of life. And today, if you're here with us and you're not a follower of Christ or there's doubt there, you're in darkness and you will remain in darkness until you let go of whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever it is that you're worshiping, let go, repent, and come to the light. And the promise of this passage will be yours. You will have the light of life. Now, for those of us who are believers, if we think about our two Advent themes, you know what's great about this Advent wreath here is I could have used this in my bedroom when I was a kid. It would have been incredible just to have a little bit of light. But as we think of joy, as we think of peace, we know that in the New Testament and other places, these are commanded of us, and yet they're also fruits of the Holy Spirit. So how do we obey? How do we have peace that passes all understanding? How do we have joy that passes all understanding when, when these are gifts of God, when these are fruits of the Spirit? 
And there are ways that we can do that. I'm going to share two of them with you up on the screen. Now, if I were simply to say, just walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. Again, that's biblical, right? But if I end there, I'm just giving you a platitude. What does that mean? What does that look like tomorrow morning when I wake up and come face to face with the horizontal ugliness of my life? And so here we go. The first one, obedience. Obedience regardless of circumstances, is a way in which we encourage the work of the Spirit to bring peace and joy. Again, the peace and joy that passes all understanding, that comes upon us when it really shouldn't. Obedience is the first one. And uh, uh, Andre uh, Kostenberger explains it well. He says, make moral decisions that are in accordance with his revealed will. Very simple. Make moral decisions at each and every turn in life that are in accordance with the revealed will of God, that we, that we know, that we have in his word. And two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, last time I preached, we ended the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about the storms of life, how they come up upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And so as we're walking through those storms, continue to obey, even though you don't feel like it, even though it's a struggle. And then connected to that is, is vertical reorientation. Because those storms of life, as we've talked about many times, have a way of drawing our attention away from God and onto the horizontal plane. And God each day is inviting us to keep our focus on him, to keep our focus on the lighthouse of our faith, Jesus Christ, and the truth of our identity in Christ, and the truth of where our citizenship truly lies, which is not this planet, not anymore, but heaven, our true and eternal home. So learn to vertically reorient your life uh, on God, on the truth, regardless of your feelings, regardless of the circumstances that are contributing to those feelings. And I put Philippians 4, 7 in here because we always talk about Philippians 4, 5, and 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer, make your request be known to God. And that's the, the command to reorient our lives. But I wanted to show you verse 7 because it's the promise. The promise of God that will come when we do that. When we obey and we vertically reorient our focus. Paul gives us the promise. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, so we've seen the source of light, Jesus Christ. This transition now from creation, so we could figure out who he was, the preexistent God, to the new creation, to the mission of the gospel. And now we're going to meet the witness, the light's witness in verses six through eight. Read with me verses six through eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Again, from a grammatical point of view, John does something very unexpected here. He interrupts his poem about the word. Again, the, the genre so far is really poetry, this beautiful poem, the word poem, and he interrupts it with a little prose narrative about this man named John. Very interesting that he would do this. Now, first and foremost, this John is not the same author of the gospel, so different John. This John we know as John the Baptist, or as John portrays him in his gospel, John the Witness. 
Now, why would he do this? Why would, in the middle of this beautiful poem, he's going to get back to the the poem about the word in verse 9. So why, for three verses, would he do this? And there's two reasons, I believe. First, First reason is this. It is the apostolic pattern. What that means is, this is the pattern of the apostles. If you look at all four gospel accounts, uh, and even really Acts, if you look at Acts chapter 1, and, and you remember where they had to replace Judas as one of the 12 apostles, they give us there a, a time, two time stamps on the ministry of Jesus Christ. The beginning was the baptism of John, and the end was Jesus' ascension back to heaven. And so as we look at the gospel accounts, they begin with John the Baptist, Right? If you look at Mark, Mark's gospel account, he begins right with the baptism of, John, of Jesus, John the Baptist's ministry. If you look at Matthew, about three chapters in, not really close, right after the birth narrative of Jesus, we get to John the Baptist. And as we read this morning a little bit, in Luke chapter 1, we see the birth prophecy of John the Baptist, even before Mary's told about her own miraculous birth. And so here, he includes it at, up at the front as well. And of course, we have some incredible prophecies about this witness, this this coming one who would herald the arrival of the Messiah. And I put those up on on the screen behind me, just the first line of each of these great passages. You'll see there Isaiah 40, uh, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then Malachi, we have two of them. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me, before me. God's talking there. And then in verse 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what's really interesting about the two in Malachi is, think about this, and I've said this before, Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. In fact, Malachi chapter 4 is the final chapter in the Old Testament. And what what do we learn? What, What should we expect? That before the Messiah comes, there'll be this one, this herald, this messenger, this witness. And then where does the New Testament begin, as I just mentioned? With this one. How amazing is the scriptures? How perfect and beautiful that 400 years of silence in between the Old and New Testament, and God picks up right where he left off, fulfilling the very promise that he said he would do. Not just the Messiah, but that this one would come, this messenger, this voice. And that's who we read about here in this passage. So, again, apostolic pattern. The second reason is this. You guys might remember in our series from Acts last year that when we got to Ephesus in chapters 18 and 19, we meet this interesting group of people who claimed to be Christians, but they followed John the Baptist. So they had gotten mistaken and saw John the Baptist as the light, essentially, as, as the, the one to follow, to venerate. And we see how, how Paul and Apollos encounter them to, to help correct them. Uh, In fact, Apollos himself was corrected because he only knew of the baptism of John. So scholars believe that when John's writing this letter from Ephesus, because John kind of, Ephesus kind of became his his new base of operation late in his life. So many scholars believe he wrote John in Ephesus, that, that here 20, 30 years later, there's still this group who venerated and worshiped John the Baptist. And so some scholars believe that John's dealing with that right up front. He's getting right to that, making it very clear that this man, this herald, is not the Messiah. He is not the light. In fact, it's emphatic in these three verses. You can see some of the things he says in English, but in the Greek, there's even more evidence that John is going out of his way to make sure nobody confuses these two men, that John the Baptist is not the Messiah. Uh, and there's, there's several ways I could show you. Uh, one, for example, if you look at verse 7, the word came there 
is actually the same word used up in verse 3 about made. So again, he's connecting John as someone who is created. He's not like the word who is preexistent. Uh, and then we see other words. He's a man. It just comes out and says it. This guy's a man, all right? Uh, he was made. And then if there's any doubt at this point, look at verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He goes out of his way. Another interesting thing, and this is uh, just something extra. I like to, to, to teach you guys some of these uh, little tidbits, but the word witness in the Greek is actually the word martyr. Now, when I say martyr, you all think of uh, Christians who die for the gospel, still happening today all over the world. But you see the original meaning of the word was to witness. And you can see how in church history, these witnesses were starting to be killed for their faith. We see it with Stephen right out of the gates in Acts chapter 7. Uh, and so you can understand how words change over time. But John was the first witness, the first one to come and proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. So uh, really neat to see. But finally, before we get to the end of this section, look at his mission. What did he come to bear witness about? And you see that at the end of verse 7, that all might believe through him. That is the purpose of his witness and the purpose of our witness as well. Now, two weeks ago, Robert showed you the very ending, uh, at least of the main section of John's gospel. I'll, th- I'll put it up on the screen again. John gives us the purpose statement for writing this beautiful gospel uh, at the end of chapter 20, which is really the, the true end of, of the, uh, the gospel. Chapter 21 is kind of an epilogue or post-credit scenes. Uh, but look at this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we have bookends of purpose. Right out of the gates in verse 7, John sent so that you may believe, and then at the very end, the purpose for his gospel, faith in Jesus Christ. A couple application points before we finish this sermon, this great passage Another word in that passage we saw uh, about John is that he was sent by God. The word there for sent is the word we get apostle from. That's what apostle means. I'm not sure if you knew that. A sent one. One who is sent. And John was sent by God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you have been sent in the same exact way. I say this to myself and to all of you. Consider yourself sent. And as you look at your life right now, where you work, where you live, uh, your hobbies, what you're involved in, that's your mission field. You've already been sent. The question is, are you seeing those opportunities as an assignment from God to be his witness like John? Because I'm here to tell you that's the case. That's the case. If you are, praise God, keep doing it. Shine as light in those places. Uh, If you're not, Start to ask God, and and regardless, start to ask God, Lord, how can I shine for you in my neighborhood? How can I shine for you at my workplace? How can I shine for you in the context of my hobbies and activities outside of the home and outside of work? Because we are sent, just like John is here. Uh, One example I can give you is when when, uh, I first joined the church at Blue Ridge uh, almost three years ago. Uh, I I swim, that's my exercise, and I was swimming at this pool all the way over in Berea. It is by far the best pool in Greenville County. It's Olympic size, but like nobody ever went there except me. There was hardly anyone there. 
And then I found out that the Gold's Gym right here in Greer added a pool. So I moved my membership. And again, there's so many people at Gold's Gym, like tons of people, especially compared to the Berea pool. And by God's grace, over the last two years, I've met several folks. I've had to, gotten to share the gospel, built some relationships. I even shared the gospel with this guy named Ernie in the sauna the other day, and it was hot. And he was rejecting the gospel. And it's like, man, get used to this, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, so see how you might be able to move your mission field or, or start to see opportunities um, to go out. And of course, here at the Church of Blue Ridge, we have missional community groups, and it's small groups that are called to go out and do mission together as part of the church. Uh, and we're still learning and, and finding opportunities to do that, but don't wait for your missional community group. As individuals and as families, you go and find opportunities as well. In fact, you might find something that you can connect your missional community group to in the future. So I want to encourage you uh, along those lines indeed. And here's the reality. God's calling us to commitment. As Christians, I know the temptation to stay in the neutral zone. The neutral zone is the safe zone. It's where you don't offend anybody. And God didn't stay in the neutral zone. He's never been in it. We have a book here that shows us the level of commitment. God is all in. He's always been all in. And he's calling us as his children to be all in. Look what Leon Morris says about this idea of commitment. He says, if I take my stand in the witness box and testify that such and such is the truth of the matter, I am no longer neutral. I have committed myself. God's calling from that, that same level of commitment from you and I. All right, so finally, we're going to see uh, the mission, the light's mission. And this was supposed to be today's sermon, so we're going to do it really quick. Um, this is where we were going to start today with the, the snow hat to come. So let's pick back up in verse 9 and read through to 13. John returns to the poem of the word, uh, leaves the, the genre of prose and, and back to poetry here about the word. He says, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but... But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So verse 9 kind of summarizes everything that has come before, brings us to this point where he can now say the true light, again, in contrast to all the false lights, even John the Baptist, who I just got done talking about, the true light, the word, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This is our first reference to the incarnation. Again, the first advent of Jesus Christ. Now, a few things to point out here. When you see um, enlightens, that's not saying that everyone was saved. That's not the point of it. What he's saying is Jesus, as the true light, the only source of salvific light, the only hope anyone on this planet has, has en is enlightening everyone. So, so really there, the point is this. Jesus is going to light everyone up. The question is, is it going to be in salvation or in judgment? So in there we see another push towards the gospel, a push towards repentance and faith. Also, everyone tells us something else, and this is a big message throughout the New Testament, that salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for Jews and Gentiles alike. It's for everyone, everyone it always has been for everyone. 
And then we see this phrase, coming into the world. That's actually a popular Old Testament or Jewish concept when it comes to expecting the Messiah. Uh, So before the New Testament, in Israel, amongst Jews, uh, the Messiah could be referred to as the coming one, the one who was come. So we see a phrase here that the first century Jew would have completely understood and understood the claim, the truth claim that John's making, that Jesus is the Messiah and he's coming. But then we get verses 10 and 11, two of the most tragic verses in the gospel. Look at these. This is heartbreaking. Look at verse 10. This is, this is a grim paradox that we're presented with, with these three side-by-side clauses, all based on the word, the world. Uh, you'll know, if, if, when you study John long enough, you'll see one of his favorite ways to be emphatic is just simply to repeat words over and over. And the word he chooses here is the word cosmos, Uh, which typically is translated the universe, but John never uses cosmos to just refer to the universe or or all created things. He uses it to refer to the world of mankind. Man is always at the center of his use of this word cosmos. And look at this sad paradox. He, that's Jesus, the word, was in the world. Again, he's referring to uh, the the life, the the 33 years that he was on the planet, his earthly ministry, He was in the world, and as we learned two weeks ago, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That makes no sense at all. That is heartbreaking, but it shows you the power of sin and darkness, that that sin and darkness blinds us. So the world at large did not know him, and then to make matters worse, look at verse 11. He came to his own. Now, in the original language, we could actually translate that to his own place or his own home. He came to his own home, and his own people did not receive him. Imagine if you're away at college or military or something, and you come home for the holidays, and your family doesn't recognize you, your neighbors don't recognize you, your friends don't recognize you. In fact, they call the cops on you for trespassing. Could you even imagine that? Jesus, God, comes to Jerusalem. He comes to his own home. He comes to his own people. And they didn't even receive him. Now, the word receive there is a very strong word. It's the word used of, of when someone would take their, uh, their wife into their home. Very intimate word. They would, they would take the, the wife or uh, the loved one into their home. And the Jews pretty much slammed the door in his face. I thought of even Mary and Joseph, thinking of Christmas time, how there was no room for them in the inn or anywhere else. They totally rejected their Savior. Now, how sad, how heartbreaking would it be if the prologue of John ended with verse 11? Look at this passage again from John 3, 19. We'll see this in a few weeks. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In fact, I can say if you're in here today and you're not a Christ follower, this verse describes you. This is your problem. This was my problem before Christ saved me. This is everyone's problem from the womb. We love the darkness rather than the light. And we can't stop loving the darkness until God graciously breaks through and opens our eyes to our sin and our need to turn from it to him. But look at verse 12. Look at the, the word but there, the conjunction but. 
We need to write a book on this great conjunction in Scripture. This is my favorite word in the New Testament because something good always comes next. Grace always comes after this word. And look at it here. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Uh, Those two phrases are synonymous here. They mean the same thing. You'll see them elsewhere in the Gospel of John. Uh, Who received him is same as those who believed in his name. Now, you've probably learned this before. The the, the idea of a name in, in Western culture, in our culture, just is a label. That's all it is. Now, I know we pick these great names for our little babies, and we like to look at the meaning. But at the end of the day, it's just a label. But in the Eastern culture, in in this culture, here in the first century, a name represented every single thing about a person, their character. Uh, And so for Jesus, the the name would be everything. All of that's been revealed about him in Scripture and on earth is contained in his name. Uh, So that's the idea here. It's not just simply anyone who liked the name Jesus. No, that's not it at all. It's everything about this one. But what I love about this passage is you see here the balance, the perfect balance of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. You see that throughout the scriptures, and here you see them before us. The responsibility of of lost people to receive him, to believe in his name, but then right after that, he gave the right, the authority, to become children of God, to be in the family. So this passage, if you want a a passage that perfectly balances human responsibility when it comes to salvation and the sovereign work of God and God alone in salvation, right here in verse 12. One verse, beautiful. And we need to keep them balanced, by the way. Too many Christians go to one side or the other and and, in, in doing that end up losing the gospel. So we have to be very careful we don't lose balance. And then finally, verse 13, as if there was any doubt of God's role in salvation. And this verse is incredible. This verse actually anticipates for us that nocturnal conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus coming up in chapter 3 when he tells them you have to be born again. This anticipates that. Some scholars uh, mistakenly have, have said that John's referring to the virgin birth because you could read this and think of the virgin birth in it. Uh, but also, those, the scholars who cleared up that error said, it doesn't mean John doesn't want us to think about the virgin birth, since this passage is about the incarnation. But look what he says here about these ones who he has brought into the family through their own faith in Christ. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God and God alone. Now, unfortunately, I can't describe in detail the meaning of those three negative statements. Uh, Men, if you want to come and ask me later, I'll be glad to share with you. And the reason for that is these three statements are very graphic statements or words in here referring to procreation. I'll just leave it at that. But feel free to come and ask me later. I'd love to share it with you, but I don't want to go down that road here. But it's, it, it, again, he's being super emphatic to make the point that we're not saved in any human way, and he's using human procreation as a means to compare that. This is a completely miraculous birth. It's a completely spiritual birth that we'll learn more of as we go along in John's gospel, and of course, as we get to John chapter three. It's a miracle, folks. It's a glorious, glorious miracle that cannot be fabricated by any religious means or acts that we sometimes uh, possess or get fooled into uh, telling people about. 
so important for us. Before we get to a few final application points, one other thing I want to show you, and this is for the sake of uh, us moving forward throughout 2019 as we continue in the Gospel of John, is uh, you would expect in a prologue to have somewhat of an outline for what is to follow the prologue, and and John doesn't disappoint, at least according to F.F. Bruce. You'll see a slide up on the screen that that shows this. Uh, John is typically split into two parts. John 1 through 12 is the first part where you have tidbits of the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then the second part is John 13 to the end, which is really just that Passion Week, the events of, of, uh, of his suffering and, of course, the upper room, then the suffering and the resurrection uh, and the ascension and all that. So what's incredible here, I never noticed this, but F.F. F. Bruce pointed this out, that verse 11 really describes the first half, the theme of the first half of John's gospel, that he came to his own place, to his own people, and they rejected him, flat out rejected him. We're going to see that over and over in the first 12 chapters of John. But, but chapter 12, uh, where here we see those who did receive him, those who are in the family, that's really what the second part of John's about, what it means to be in the family, what it means to have a seat at the table. So a little preview of where we're going in the future. But Let's, uh, let's go ahead and land the plane here with a couple application points, and then I will be done. Uh, first, has anyone ever done eBay? Bid on something, try to win an auction? Has anyone ever mi- missed a, an auction? Like, they were really wanted that, and they totally forgot. Well, just the other night, I, was, I, need, to get a, uh, I need to get a parka that, that goes with my Air Force uniform, because I got soaked two weeks ago. You guys remember it rained all weekend? Well, it did in Charleston as well. And they're like $150 brand new. So I found one in mint condition for like 20 bucks on eBay. And I was sitting there last Saturday night, so as the snowstorm was revving up for us, we were watching a Christmas movie, me and the kids, and I had my phone open. It was six minutes left, and, and I'm like, I got this thing. Because I like to wait till like the last 10 seconds and swoop in and get it. Well, the problem was I fell asleep, and I missed <laughs> the eBay auction. I know I should have went ahead and bid anyways, but I like to wait till the last minute. So I mention that because as we look back up to this final passage and we see these phrases like did not receive him, uh, but those who did receive him, who believed in his name, those three clauses are in what we call the aorist tense in Greek. And the reason I mention that is, and it sounds smart, but the aorist tense, unlike the perfect present we talk about, which has the ongoing, the aorist tense is one final decisive action. It ends, essentially. And so if you look at this with that in mind, the people who, re- who did not receive him, that was it. They missed their chance. They missed it. But those who did receive him, again, in that moment in time, they became believers in Christ in that moment in time. And, and again, I mention that for those of you who don't know the Lord. There's only a period of time open to repent and believe. And none of us are guaranteed tomorrow, so who knows when that time might end. Don't miss it. Because when you miss it, it's too late. Again, Jesus enlightens everyone. The question is, in salvation or in judgment? Don't wait. Don't put off the day of salvation. And then finally, I want to end with this great passage from Ephesians 5. For those of us who are Christians... It's important for us to remember that we are now in the light. And with that comes responsibility to obedience. Look what Paul writes 
in this great chapter of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6, actually 6 through 9, gives us a warning. Take this warning to heart. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, he had a list of sin, you know, his sin list that he has throughout his letters right before that. These things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now, by the grace of God, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And when we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we experience the fruit of the Spirit. We experience the peace, the joy, the hope, the love that passes all understanding. And that's what God has for us. Again, human flourishing, like we learned in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to invite the band to come back as we continue worshiping, and I'm going to pray here in a moment. But again, we are available to serve you all. Whatever way we can help, whether it's with counseling for those of you who are believers, uh, you want to talk more about the gospel, you're unsure of your salvation, uh, the invitation is always open here at the Church of Blue Ridge, whether it's this morning or any day this week. Get our phone number, get our email, track us down. Robert and I are standing at the ready to come alongside you and your family in any way that we can. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. I remember as a kid celebrating Advent and thinking of this, this mission of yours just a couple times a year. But for those of us who are born again, this is every Sunday. But how awesome is it during the Advent season to really focus on, on the grace of, of you, Lord God, to come into our world, to wrap yourself in human flesh, to, to not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying yourself, taking on the form of a servant, and not just dying, but dying the most gruesome death on the cross. For me, my death, you died. So your life, I could live. And the same is true for my brothers and sisters in here, Lord. Let us not take this for granted. Not today, not any day. But to be thankful, like the song says, once your enemy, now seated at your table. How amazing is that? I can't get over that. And we shouldn't the glory of salvation that we celebrate today. Thank you for your mission, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the light and life that you bring, just as in creation, now in the new creation, through the gospel and through the beautiful redemption of lost men, women, and children into your children. And I pray for anyone in here, even our children in the hall next door who who we're praying for, who we're planting seeds and watering seeds. We pray, Lord, that every one of those little ones across the hall would grow up to know you and be born again if they haven't already. And that even the children in here, the older children and youth who may not know you would be saved. And any adults in here who may not know you would be saved. Lord, bring a harvest. Bring a harvest this Advent season here and around the world. And again, we thank you for this time. And as we continue to worship you today, be with us. Inhabit the praises of your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.